investment banking is, and I still look at this, um, look at it like this, that it is an amazing platform to learn a wide set of tools that you will use in most likely almost any career you go into thereafter. Elaine, thank you so, so much for joining us today on Demo Day. Thanks for having me. So Elaine, you are at one of the top VC funds in Los Angeles, Graycroft. And, you know, before we dig into how you got there and what your journey's been like in uh, uh, getting to the place you are, I always like to get a better understanding of why you've chosen, you know, you, you could go so many different avenues in your career. What is it about startups and working with entrepreneurs that gets you so excited and has made you want to stay in this industry? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I was a founder before I entered into the VC um, world. And so, you know, it is the passion and the ideas um, and uh, the innovation that is really keeps me close to um, to the space and, and kind of keeps me coming back, I guess. It, it, some people say it's addicting, but um, so I do think that there's an aspect of that. But um, I think it's, it's, it's really, it revolves around innovation. Um, every single person that I talk to every day is solving a problem that typically is a problem um, for the broader world um, somehow. And, and they're, they're solving them um, through technology. And I think it's, um, it's very inspiring. Were you the type of person growing up that was always around technology and innovation, or uh, is that something that came later in life? Maybe you could even unwind us and maybe talk about uh, where you grew up and what early life was like for you before starting to move into a, the tech environment. Yeah. Um, I, I will say, um, as the cliff notes would go, um, I was probably middle of the road. I wasn't, you know, immersed in technology. I was not some sort of, you know, 10 year old engineer or developer or anything like that. Um, but, but I have always been, um, an early adopter of, of technology. Um, and you know, that has been, um, a consistent theme across my, um, my youth. Um, in terms of where I grew up, I, um, I actually grew up in upstate New York, in a, a town called Rochester, um, and I actually lived outside of Rochester. I lived on a farm. And there was very little technology there, I'd say. Yeah. Um, but we had uh, chickens and, and rabbits and whatnot. Um, so, so, um, but I, I did. I, I was part of an entrepreneurial family. Um, you know, my dad ran a family business, um, and. We always were um, looking at different opportunities and technologies as a family, I would say. Um, for the farm or just for, for his business? For his business. Yeah, not for the farm. The farm was really more of a um, a hobby at best, I would say. <laughs> um, <laughs> even calling it a hobby farm is maybe a little uh, <laughs> a little generous. But um, uh it was more like, you know, we, we had a, uh, when, as a kid, if you go to the state fair and you get a couple of rabbits that you think are cute, you, you learn 
very quickly that, you know, the sayings are correct and, and you end up with a hundred rabbits like two months later. So that's how our farm, farm began. <laughs> so um, it was not a very professional farm, but um, no, I moved in. Um, we moved down to South Florida. I did my high school years in South Florida. Um, I think we got sick of the cold weather. And then, um, uh, you know, I left home for college and I've lived in um, Dallas, New York, Chicago, San Francisco, back to Chicago and now LA since um since college when with all of the moving around was that like predicated on the mentality of the upstate new york where like did you always have a dream when you were younger to get out of upstate new york or did it just happen that you ended up moving around from whether it be different careers or passions uh what was the driving factor that had you travel and see you know a lot of the parts of the united states um it was my career definitely um it was either my career or my husband's um, so we kind of had a joke where we would trade off each, each move was for one of the other person, you know? Um, so we got turns, um, but we, you know, we moved, um, we both went to business school. Um, we actually met in, um, in investment banking in New York. So, um, I moved to New York right after college and I worked at JP Morgan, uh, doing M and A in their consumer retail group. Um, and that was kind of during the good years. So might age me a little bit, but back, um, you know, prior to, uh, the financial crisis and back when banking was sort of, um, I don't know, it, it was in the good years, I guess, although we worked a lot. Um, and, um, and then after that we moved, I, I took on a role, um, doing corporate development. So internal M and A at a large CPG firm called Sarah Lee. So, um, they actually technically don't exist today, um, as a company anymore. Um, but we were a part of doing the breakup analysis and selling their brands. Um, and then I went to business school, um, at Northwestern at Kellogg, um, to get my MBA. And then I spent the next, um, about 10 years after business school in the world of startups. So, yeah. What was what was the excitement for you around startups? I know mergers and acquisitions is a completely different mindset than when you're working with, you know, early stage companies that are trying to get off the ground. Were you at a point where you were just sort of done with the bigger companies and you wanted to try something new or what was the driving force behind uh, hmm. moving into the startup world? I think it was two things. One, um, uh, yes, I, when I worked at Sara Lee, it was a bit, um, and I don't think that it completely satisfied everything that I wanted to do in my life. Um, it was, I went from running full speed during, during investment banking times to, um, operating at a slightly slower pace in corporate, corporate world, um, especially large fortune 100 corporate world. Um, so yeah, it was, um, just a little bit of a different pace than what I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was intrigued by the world of startups and early stage. Um, that being said, I don't think that that was really maybe, uh, I don't, I don't think that I got pushed at that point directly into startups. Um, if I'm going to be honest, pretty much majority of my career moves have been because of people or teams that I've met that have, um, 
you know, uh, inspired me or, um, or I've been excited to work with. Um, so that's really where the, the drive was. I think the second part of my career, um, post business school was really based on, um, based on people. Uh, I want to get back to that in, in just a moment, but going back to like the early days of, of growing up, what sort of uh, student were you or how would your teachers describe you? Were you very academic? Were you into sports? Were you into business? Uh, how, how would your professors or teachers describe you back in elementary school? In elementary school? Well, I'll say, I think that if you talk to any of my teachers, um, <laughs> this is revealing a lot. Um, if you talk to any of my teachers in high school, uh, and I'll go to high school because I don't remember what they would say about me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, but I'll, I'll do high school and college. Um, I think they would they would really say very different things. Um, and so between high school and college. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had I would say kind of a personal pivot at some point, um, and I can tell you exactly when it was. Yeah. It was about halfway through sophomore year in college. Um, but in high school, how would teachers describe me? Um, I was a bit more of a partier, I guess. Um, school was secondary. I did not, um, I did not prioritize, um, that much in terms of school or, um, my potential career. I did always work. I did always hold a job at all times. Um, but that was, mostly a job in a restaurant or, or, or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, making money was always very important for me. Um, but I didn't really see the link between school and making money at that time. Um, and so, uh, that was, you know, you could probably get some good stories out of my high school teachers. Um, come, um, college, you know, I think something did, um, switch, within myself, um, in the early years of college. Um, maybe I had sort of gotten all my partying out. I don't know what it was, but, um, I, uh, I actually learned about, I think it was sophomore year. I learned about this job called investment banking. I didn't know anything about it. Um, but they, you know, it sort of, seemed like to me, um, one of the best paying jobs at the time, um, that I could get out of school. And I just sort of made it my mission to, to do that after school. Um, I went to uh, Southern Methodist university in, in Dallas, Texas. It was not a highly recruited job, um, in our, in, in our school. Um, couple people maybe every year were recruited out of, out of our school, nothing against the school. It just wasn't, um, what well, most know, people went there for. New York. Yeah. And, 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 and it was just far away. Um, you know, m most of the banks are hiring for their New York, um, positions and stuff. Um, and so, um, I started working towards that and I got, you know, pretty much straight A's after that after I started caring. <laughs> um, so, you know, my teachers in college would actually probably really remember that I wanted, um, I had a goal in mind and that was what I was going to achieve. Um, so I did end up getting, um, an internship at JP Morgan. Um, I interned at a private equity firm before that 
during my junior year. And then junior year summer, I interned at JP Morgan and then um, was able to get an offer in their full-time program in the New York office after I graduated. Um, and I went and did that um, starting in uh, 2005. Many investors that I've talked to on the show had some background, whether it be in finance or investment banking. Uh, it's It's not untraditional that that's kind of part of the journey uh for those that are listening that are maybe going into their very first year of investment banking or are thinking about you know how to rise to the ranks do you have any advice for you know how you handled it or what your mindset was once you got your full-time job uh how was you how were you planning on rising through the ranks once you got there yeah i mean i i don't really think you know and, and when you're starting your first year out of college in investment bank, my advice would be not to think about rising through the ranks um, because chances are you won't. Um, but how come? You know, it, um, it's really just based on time. You know, like it, at Sen the end of two years, mm. you might get promoted to senior associate, but ninety percent of that time, you will choose to leave before you move up in the ranks. It's not. Um, it's not like a startup where you can have an I know uh, the overnight success is never an overnight success, but the idea of just rising through the ranks all of a sudden doesn't happen. You have to really pay your dues and, and uh, time. It's a program. It's, it's a very formulated um, program that you follow. Did that jive well with your personality or did you find yourself, you know, uh, anxious and wanting to get to the next place or did it fit very well for what you were trying to do? Again, I, I don't. I didn't really look at it as my final step, so I was not really looking to rise through the ranks of investment banking. Um, I looked at investment banking as a stepping stone to something else, and I didn't know what that else would be. Mm. Um, but investment banking is, and I still look at this, um, look at it like this: that it is an amazing platform to learn um, a wide set of tools that you will use. Um, uh, in most likely almost any career you go into thereafter, um, you learn, um, really a, a baseline of not only like financial modeling, um, you know, presentation skills, um, team management skills, how to work with senior, um, senior partners and senior, senior people, um, client management skills. Um, but lastly, also, um, you learn about work ethic. And uh, whether you like it or not, you're forced into a certain work ethic. Um, and that, in my experience, um, laid a foundation for myself on how I, how I um, have treated my career and my jobs going forward. So I don't think I ever was trying to rise through the ranks in investment banking. Um, but I think I did realize it and sort of take it for what it was, which was a really great platform to learn these tools that will be extremely useful for me going forward. For those that are listening to the podcast and understand fundamentally what a venture capital is or what investing in a startup is, can you talk to us a little bit about like what is investment banking or maybe what's the difference between investment banking and being an investor for startups? Yeah. Um, so investment banking is, um, you are a, uh, really at the end of the day, you're a consultant for later stage companies, usually, um, usually public companies, um, that are considering a, um, 
liquidity event or um, a capital raise. And so in the M&A team, that's really, you know, they're considering a merger and acquisition. Um, You are the relationship manager between that company and any other potential opportunity or company that they have. Mm. Um, And you are um, expected to be the financial layer and the financial um, uh, consultant, for lack of a better word, um, for the company on what their options are. Um, and, and really focus on like their fiduciary duty to their, um, shareholders. Was there a certain time when you were working that one of your peers or mentors came and started to talk to you about the idea of venture capital? Um, was that your very next job? I I know you mentioned that you started your own company and then eventually became a VC. Uh, how did you decide to leave investment banking? Uh, and was being an entrepreneur the very next step once you were done with that? Yeah, no, I, I spent about um, uh, 11 years in between that um, before making my way to VC. So, or no, 12 years. I don't know. A long time. Um, <laughs> Feels like a lifetime ago. Yeah, it's been a long time. Um, so, no, I... Um, I did not go right into being an entrepreneur and I did not go right into being a venture capitalist. Um, it was a long road for both of those. Um, you know, I kind of took baby steps, um, along my entire career to, um, to getting where I am. Uh, the baby steps looked like this. Um, I went from investment banking, which was really, consulting companies on their mergers or acquisition opportunities and how to maximize shareholder value. Um, uh, and that was driven by a lot of financial modeling. Um, I went into internal corporate M&A. So I was internally advising one company, which was Sara Lee, on um, their merger and acquisition opportunities and how to maximize their shareholder value. Um, I decided that you know, large companies and corporations were not um, my bread and butter. I, I got, I went back to business school. Um, I graduated in 2009. I For business um, school, I'm, I'm curious, was like, was it, did you go to business school for something? Like you knew that that was part of what you needed to get to or I was went it? I business school because I had nothing. Because <laughs> I did not know what I wanted to do. Um, I went to business school because I knew that I didn't want to do what I was doing but I didn't know what was out there. And um, in my opinion, business school is the best place to figure that out. Um, it sort of provides a safe haven, but also um, a great network of people to learn from. Um, and um, so I, I know I, I actually, I didn't know where I wanted to go. Um, during that time, um, you know, this is just sort of how life goes. Um, you know, things happen that you don't always plan for. And mm-hmm. so um, the rest of my career was a little bit here and there. Um, um, while I was in business school, my husband decided he was going to go to business school. And so he got accepted to Stanford after that. And so we decided we we're going to move to, to, to Palo Alto area. And, um, and because we were living in Palo Alto, I got into startups. Um, it was not really because I was, I had to be in, in startups and I had to go work for a startup. I truly, it was 2009. I didn't even really know that much about startups. Um, I, I, 
I knew about Silicon Valley. Um, but honestly, I was, I had a couple job offers to go back into investment banking out in San Francisco. Um, I knew that I didn't really want to do that if given the opportunity. And I, um, uh, so I started networking and I, um, I actually was meeting with some people that I knew from my JP Morgan days, um, who introduced me to some people in the startup space. And that's sort of how it, how it all happened. Um, I joined a company called tiny Prince very early on when they just started. How many people, um, sorry, how many people on the team when you first joined? Um, under 20. Oh, wow. Um, I was on their business development team. So it was as close to M&A that you could possibly get, um, which is what I was used to and what I knew, um, but in, in a very different environment. And um, I, uh, I did that for a little bit. We, we ended up taking in a large Series A round right then. Um, and we grew from about 20 people to um, 380 people in two years. Um, and then at the end of those two years, we were acquired, um, by Shutterfly, um, which was a public company company. So we became over 1200, um, employees and a public company within two years. Um, during that time I, I was doing business development and then I did end up moving over and running their, um, one of their brands, which is wedding paper divas. So it's sort of a GM role of wedding paper divas. Um, and then after we were acquired, um, it was kind of a crazy experience and very exciting. And I still have a really great um, group of friends from that time. I moved over to, or, or actually my husband graduated, moved back to Chicago. And so at that point in time, I sort of got the bug and I um, really wanted to be around more entrepreneurs. And so I um, had the idea that I wanted to, at one time in one day, start my own company. Um, I I thought that the best way to do that would be go work for even even smaller company and even earlier stage company and to see different um, life stages. Um, and so I worked for a very early stage company um, in uh, in um, Chicago um, and we were building a um, social driven um, e-commerce platform. This is back when um, we thought that we would um, be shopping within Facebook. Social commerce was mm -hmm. like a thing. Turns out it's not a thing and you don't want to shop in Facebook. We learned that. Um, so we pivoted a bunch. Um, the company actually went on to create a, um, a totally different product and they actually just were acquired a few months ago. But um, I ended up leaving two years in to start my own company. Um, the first company I started was I had built an algorithm to help match gift buyers to personal rec recommendations. Um, specifically targeted in the jewelry space um, when we launched and um, helping, uh, yeah, gift buyers get matched with recommendations. Um, you know, I learned a lot of lessons with this company. We worked um, on it for two years um, and I ended up moving on from that, that, um, that company after two, two and a half years um, for many reasons, which you know, we can get into, but it was definitely a lot of lessons that I've taken into my investing. Um, because, uh, I think sometimes you definitely learn more from these failures than you do from success. Um, the, I did a little bit of consulting for about a year 
Um, and then I started my second company, which was um, really like a class pass for kids' classes and activities. Mm. It helped um, match parents um, and child care, child child care with um, uh, classes and activities um, in their area. Were you uh, were you a mom at the time? Like, was this one of those businesses to kind of like solve a solve a need that you were seeing in your own uh, your own yeah. space? Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and I went about the company in a very different um, fashion than I did the first one. Um, I was um, very conscious about the people I started it with. Um, I built a great team. Um, a, a couple years in, we actually had an acquisition offer um, and we ended up taking that offer um, because it made sense for us and the team at the time. Um, so we were acquired in, um, gosh, I, you know, I'm not gonna remember the dates. Um, and um, we became part of a larger education company. Um, they had uh, classes that were focused on adults. Um, they wanted to branch into the kids space. Mm. Uh, so I came on, um, ran their marketing, um, pretty much a lot of their product as well. And um, we worked, sorry, in, as part of that company for, for the next uh, couple, um, couple years. And then um, at that time, my husband actually had an opportunity in LA. Um, this is sort of beginning of 2017. Um, in LA and um, we decided to move out to LA. It was a really quick decision. Um, you know, my startup, my baby, um, sort of my second baby, I guess, um, cause I already had a real baby, but um, <laughs> uh, was in somebody else's hands. And even though I was still working with it, it just was a little bit different at that point. Um, and so we felt like if we were gonna ever move out West, this was a good time to do it. Um, our kids were still young. So we moved out to LA and, um, and I actually joined, um, I was actually looking for a, for a, I was always a product person, um, in startups. And so I was actually really had my heart set on, uh, some product roles in LA, um, given there's a lot of really great consumer facing companies here. Um, and I ended up meeting a guy named Peter Goldberg, who, was starting a venture firm um, uh, through his family office. And so he was looking for a partner and he really wanted somebody who had, you know, run a business before, um, been an entrepreneur and could um, sort of uh, help him build um, a presence in Southern California um, and do uh, early stage investing. So we built this company, PLG Ventures, um, we are, we were a family office, a venture firm. Um, we became one of the more prolific pre-seed investors in LA. We had close to 50 portfolio companies. Um, and you know, we, we, we invested across all different industries, um, in like the pre-seed and seed rounds, I'd say. Um, so I have a, yeah. I have a couple questions before jumping back into PLG days. Uh, the first mm -hmm. one is when you started your second company, you said something to the effect of I, you know, made uh, different decisions the second time around than I did the first time. And, and it sounded like uh, choosing the right team was kind of one of or not necessarily choosing the right team, but really spending the time necessary uh, to 
uh, make adjustments in the second company around your team. Can you elaborate a little bit more, of course, without naming names, what were some of the takeaways from the first company in building a team that maybe you could use as a piece of advice for other founders that are starting to build their teams? What mistakes did you make in the first uh, in the first startup that you tried to fix in the second startup? Yeah, well, I probably made mistakes all over the place. But, <laughs> um, uh, one, I would say is, um, you know, really around making sure that the founding team has the same um, long-term goals. Um, you know, it's really, it's really different when you go down a venture-backed route um, or not, and it, and it does change, changes everything, um, but it changes the expectations. For someone, and, sorry, to, yeah. sorry to cut you off, Elaine, but for someone that is sitting here right now thinking about going the venture-backed route versus going the bootstrapped route, what is, you know, what, like what goes through your head in, in those sorts of situations? Like, uh, as you just mentioned, it's very very different going down these different pathways. So uh, what what should entrepreneurs be aware of when they're making that decision? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, one is, is just, do you need the capital? Um, is this something that, is this a business that you can get off the ground and running without that capital? Um, and there's different types of capital as well. Um, venture capital is capital that comes with a lot of strings. Um, there's other capital that doesn't, you know, you can take in debt, but those that comes with the strings of repayment. Sorry. Um, and, um, and then there's more angel capital and, and, you know, actually today there's so many different sources of, um, non-traditional capital, mm -hmm. I would say. Um, so, you know, I always encourage founders before they go down the route of venture capital to really understand all the different capital sources there are out there. Sorry understand all of the um, capital sources out there and why um, one is better than the other for their business. Um, and, and at the end of the day, really understand as well that, you know, taking in equity based capital means um, giving up part of your company. Um, and I, I know that people kind of understand that on paper, but a lot of times I feel like they don't fully understand what those implications mean. Um, and it's not right for everybody. Um, it's only right for some people and that's okay. Um, and so, um, yeah, I think that, you know, having the founding team, um, and, or just, yeah, having the founding team all on the same page with the same goals and aligned is very helpful, um, in, in, um, uh, communication and, and the future. And, um, Lastly, I would say that um, open communication and transparency is really important. Those go hand in hand, really. Um, but uh, being being open, being transparent, being communicative with um, the founding team is also uh, really necessary and um, kind of make, makes or break a lot of the company, you know. Um, you, you, you end up spending more time with these people than you will your husband or wife or anything. And, um, you, you really do have to be on the same page. You have to go inside. 
Now, going back to your second startup, once it was acquired, I think that not many people uh, know what it feels like to, you know, spend your blood, sweat and tears to build a company. Then you finally have this uh, opportunity where you get to sell or, or get acquired and you have, um, you know, it's exciting, but then you sort of almost like get over that honeymoon period to realize, like you said, it's not really like completely yours or, or it's not the way that you had envisioned it, you know, uh, when you first started. Can you talk a little bit more about, you know, what are some of the pros and some of the cons for companies uh, that get acquired and end up having to work kind of underneath the umbrella company? Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, there, there's always, um, at the end of the day, it's sort of the what ifs mm. um, that are in your head and the opportunity cost that you evaluate there. Um, you know, what if um, this could have been a lot bigger and, and did, how much money did I leave on the table here? Um, but you have to make the best decision um, uh, that you think is the best decision for the company. And honestly, when you're at an early stage company um, like this, and, and also for yourself um, at the end of the day, um, when you're a later stage company and you take in um, additional, you know, larger investors and um, you have institutions involved in your company, then I think you also have to um, you actually have to put aside your your own personal, um, you know, prerogative there, and you have to focus on what's best for the the shareholders and therefore the company. Um, but for me, um, you know, it was really uh, doing what I think was best for the company at that time and the best for for the team. Um, is it weird joining another company? It was very exciting at first, actually. Um, and it's, it's, um, you know, you always are sold on a dream of all of the synergies that are going to come out of combining these two companies and why it makes so much sense. And gosh, if you just put these together, it's just like, you're off to the races, you know, um, everything's always more complicated than that. Yeah. Nothing's that easy. Um, so then you get in the weeds and you're like, oh, well that's, you know, that's a little bit more difficult than what we thought or, you know. Uh, we thought our tech stacks were completely compatible. It turns out, you know, we have to rebuild a lot of it. Um, so that, that happens. Um, it doesn't, it, it hopefully doesn't derail everything, but um, there certainly will be frustrations that come with that. Um, but the biggest thing at the end of the day, which was probably a lesson for me as well, but is really around evaluating the team and the company that is you're combining with. Mm. Uh, it's one thing to say, okay, we have to rebuild some of this technology and you can probably do that. Um, but if the team isn't complementary and have the same vision and the same mission and the same culture, that's where it becomes a little bit more difficult. Um, and I would advise anybody that's, that's really evaluating any of these offers, um, especially if they are joining the team as well. And the, the, you know, the two companies and all the people are, staying um together then i would really really um understand that other team and especially the leaders at that company and make sure that you are on the same page it is like gaining another founder or getting another spouse um because 
it, and and maybe it's even harder than finding a founder because all of a sudden you're you're this is your baby that you've built for years and you're watching someone else kind of take it over and it's very it's a little bit difficult sometimes to let go. Oh, I can imagine. Um, and so um, it's just something you know that uh, should be carefully considered. Um, there's plenty of um, very I, I don't know, um, unfortunate stories out there of these examples going south. Um, and, and there's a lot of examples of really great outcomes as well. But a, a lot of it usually stems from the team and, and the um, misalignment the of vision. Yeah. 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 Uh, Elaine, this is an interesting question that I don't get to ask often, um, but because of your background and the journey that you've had, when you reflect back onto the time when you sold your company, you sort of built your career by being like a powerhouse when it comes to analyzing deals. You know, it's like that, that was uh, everything that you'd been working towards was to get to this moment. Did you find in reflection that you were able to treat your business with the same objective kind of mindset that you would for any normal company? Or did you feel that, you know, because it was yours and it was your baby, it was a little bit harder to uh, make those decisions. Um, yeah. I don't think it was harder for me to make those decisions. Um, I actually think that I had more information to make those decisions. I knew the the real truth. Um, I knew the market better than anybody. And I knew what my alternatives were. You know, when you're an advisor and you're on the other side of the market um, and you're advising a company, you only know what you can research. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you're not the expert there. Um, and you can say, oh, okay, I think these are great acquirers because of X, Y, Z reasons, or, you know, I think that the synergies here for these two companies look like this, but, um, it almost, you know, shines a light on how little, you know, as these advisors versus being a founder in a business and really just knowing every single little piece of it, um, front and back. Um, and so I think that actually made it a little bit more, um, uh, maybe it was more stressful because I was so involved and so emotionally involved in it. Um, so certainly more stressful, but, uh, I did feel like I had more, um, information and more, um, confidence to make a decision. Fast forwarding towards PLG, uh, you had 50 portfolio companies under management and at some point you decided to make a move. What was sort of the thought process in leaving PLG and, and how did you end up at Graycroft? Yeah. Um, uh, it was not really something I was um, planning for, um, but, you know, I had always respected the Graycroft team. Um, I had respected their portfolio. Um, I had worked um, here and there with Dana um, and some of the other team members at Graycroft, um, uh, Sophia as well, um, throughout the couple years that I was at PLG. Um, and I really enjoyed everybody that I met there. Um, so, you know, the opportunity came across my plate because they had, um, they had a fund, um, and is the fund that, you know, the job that I do now, um, they have a separate fund that sits alongside the Graycroft core fund. Um, it is a 
smaller fund. It's a $50 million fund backed solely by Albertsons, the grocery retailer. Mm. Um, they developed a partnership with them um, where really it's a traditional venture firm. We just happen to have one LP instead of many LPs. Um, so uh, given we have one strategic LP, um, we've focused our investments um, strategically in and around the future of retail. And, um, you know, the thesis for this fund um, matched very well with sort of my passion, everything I've done in my past, all the way up until aligning with, you know, when I was at JP Morgan in, in the M&A group, I covered, I was in the consumer retail group, but I specifically actually covered grocery retailers. Um, that was my space. I was actually known as the grocery analyst, um, <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Um, and, um, and then I worked at Sarah Lee being a large CPG player, um, and then spent, you know, 10 years in e-commerce after that. So, you know, I had, um, experience in working within large fortune 100 companies, um, similar to an Albertsons. Um, I, had a grocery specific background um, and um, a lot of the DNA as a founder and um, and uh, working within startups um, on the operations. And so at the end of the day, it was sort of just a um, realization that um, we had when I was talking with Dana that they had this fund, they needed somebody to manage it. And it weirdly sort of fit in with my background. Um, and, um, you know, it was definitely um, an opportunity for me to develop my career further, um, learn from, you know, they have 13 plus years of um, running a fund and then, um, you know, six partners and, a handful of operating partners and an entire team below that. So the number of years, I don't know what it would be, but if you added up all the years of experience in investing, it's a lot. Um, and so, you know, the opportunity of what I could learn from that many um, people and that many years of experience was very um, interesting to me. Um, and then again, you layer in the fact that I actually enjoyed everybody that I met. Um, that was really the, the deciding factor. Um, so I still am involved with PLG Ventures. Um, uh, Peter is running it still and um, given it is family, his family office and um, family capital, it's, you know, it is an evergreen fund where, you know, they can go up and down, scale up and down investments based on the opportunities in the market. Mm. Um, and so I am still involved as a venture partner and I try to support, support our portfolio companies um, when, um, uh, when needed. Um, and so, um, but for me personally, um, from a career development standpoint, this just made sense. What is something about being a venture capitalist that you found that you really love that you weren't expecting going into it? Let's see. Um, um, you know, I, I, I still really enjoy, um, working with our portfolio companies and, um, I enjoy, um, you know, 
trying to add value um, internally into the company. Um, and that usually happens in two different ways. I'm still a product person at heart. Um, I think I was scared when I went into investing that I would never be able to feel like I was building a product anymore. Um, I only got to invest in products. I didn't get to build them anymore. Um, I'd say that that's true, um, but I do get a little bit closer to the product and to the team than I thought I might be able to. Um, And so that is a pleasant surprise for me, I would say. What is something that you've learned about venture capital that you don't love, that you weren't expecting going into it? That one's easier for me to answer. <laughs> I don't know what that says about venture capital. But um, no, um, I, uh, I guess you know this high level and, and you probably expect it, but really living it every day is different. Um, the fact that you know my job is, at the end of the day, I, I have to say no to so many founders. Um, 99% of the companies I talk to, I say no to. Um, respectfully, actually, respectfully, of course. Respectfully, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, I can't do all of the deals that I talk to. Um, it's, it's obviously capital is limited um, and there's a lot of really amazing people and ideas out there. Um, and so, it, you know, the, the amount of companies we talk to, it comes out to, yeah, majority of them I have to, I have to respectfully pass on. And that is, that is not super fun. Um, I remember being on the other side of the table, begging for money for years and years and years and, and getting those no's and it's, and it's not, it's not fun. And I don't, I still, um, however many years into it, I, I don't enjoy giving a no. Um, but I also do think that a quick no um, and being very transparent about why and trying to give a couple reasons um, is the best way um, to do it. And I try to do that with everybody that I talk to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes those reasons are very easy to understand and sometimes they're a little bit harder to understand for a founder. Um, but regardless, I try to always um, give a little bit of transparency into why um, my answer is what it is. When it comes to working with a fund that has someone like an Albertsons involved as part of uh, the LP, and that's like essentially giving the monies to make the investments, what does a typical day look like for you? Are you mostly sourcing new deals? Are you meeting with founders? Are you, um, yeah, maybe take us into like a day in the life pre-COVID and maybe a day in the life and how it's changed now that we're working from home, if at all. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. So, um, a day in a life, I mean, I don't think that, that, that my time split has really changed that much from working while working at home. Um, I, I would actually probably say I'm about 50%. Well, uh, yeah. Given I'm a newer, um, member at Graycroft, um, I have less portfolio companies on my plate today. Um, you know, at, when you are 13 years into investing within a fund, you become almost 100% your skew is towards working with portfolio companies. Um, or not 100, but it's it's higher. Um, for me, it's a little bit less because I don't have as many portfolio companies under my belt right now. Um, 
but um, I still do try to spend a good portion of my time with those companies, helping them. Um, and that comes and goes. It just depends on mm-hmm. when companies are raising another round or board meetings, et cetera. Um, and then I'd say the other split is between um, new companies and um, diligencing companies that I'm interested in. So really working on deals that I, um, I, I you know, yeah, so th- that's a good portion. But again, everything sort of ebbs and flows with deal flow. When you are meeting a new company and trying to source, do due diligence, decide whether or not it's the right fit, uh, is there any sort of patterns or characteristics in founders that you typically find as like, I want to invest in this person or I want to invest in this team? What are some of the elements that really are the green flags that you look for when you make investments? Well, I've definitely learned that, you know, when you do invest in a company, it is, um, you're going to be working with them for many, many years to come. So it certainly has to be somebody you are like, I want to, I want to talk to this person every week for the next few years. Like that, that sounds like it would be fun, you know? So you guys have to get along. Um, the personalities have to mesh. Um, but beyond that, um, uh, you know, I really look for confidence. Um, I look for passion. I look for founders that are just, you can tell they're not going to, um, they're not going to stop. Um, but there is a fine line between that and, um, taking in advice. So I also look for somebody who is able to, um, take in feedback, digest it and, um, apply it to their business in a very smart way. What about the flip side to that coin? When you meet a founder that you actually really like, you like their vibe, you like how they, you could, you could see yourself uh, talking to them, but something's not feeling right about the business or something's not feeling right about the investment. Are there any sort of patterns that you find, or again, what would some of the red flags be that tend to turn you away from wanting to invest in a startup? Well, I think that there's certainly a lot of things that don't have to do with that founder particularly, but you know, if it's a, a market that we're not particularly interested in, mm-hmm. we don't think it's a big enough market. Um, you know, we want our founders to be dreaming very big. Um, and we would love to invest in every company that has a billion dollar potential um, and, and not just market size, but for but actual, um, you know, TAM for them. Um, I think that you know, there's a lot of other red flags that can come up outside of, um, the founder, you know, we do look for, um, a product and a market that really understands what problem they're solving, um, and has a, a brand or an experience that goes along with it. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think that Greatcroft also, in general, and this is something that I've started to really pick up on, and I, I really enjoy what they do. Is Greycroft is very thesis driven. Um, it doesn't. It's not always the case. Sometimes we just receive um, an introduction to a founder that has an idea in a company that's in a random space, and we're like, "Wow, this is just amazing!" Like, I, you know, this is a really cool idea, and you're a great founder, and this is a great team, and it just all fits together. But the other side of that, and, and that happens a lot. Um, I would say almost most of the time, but, um, 
The other side of the coin is that we um, are really thesis driven internally and we can, um, we enjoy um, becoming industry experts and um, understanding where there is a problem in an industry and what, um, and we don't maybe necessarily know how that problem needs to be solved or whatnot, but we see the problems and we try to find companies and go out and source those companies that are solving that problem. Um, and so that means that we're actually looking for something. Um, and when we look for something, we get pretty passionate about it. And, um, you know, we know pretty quickly when we found a fit there um, between a, a company and our thesis. Um, so that, you know, it might sound like semantics, but it's actually a pretty different approach um, from just waiting for something to come across your your plate, um, but really going out and finding it. That's awesome. And, that's and I think that that also, um, that part of it is made a little bit easier for me by, um, by the, the partnership we have with Albertsons. Um, so I'm able to really, you know, I have a very close relationship with um, a lot of the um, team over there. And I'm able to pick their brains and understand where the problems are and what's what they're experiencing, especially during a time like COVID where mm -hmm. um, everything is just <laughs> crazy and in and, and, and flux. And, um, you know, Albertsons went public uh, just under a month ago. And so, you know, going from, uh, there's a lot of change there and, and change um, can uh, highlight areas of improvement. And so that's been really fun for, for us to identify those areas of improvement and go out and find solutions. Now, I know that uh, the stage of venture capital has started to blend, you know, between pre-seed and seed, late seed, early A, late A. Uh, where does Greycroft, uh, Greycroft fall, uh, or, or even more particular, your fund that you're managing right now within Greycroft? Uh, are you guys, you know, pre-seed, seed, series A? What, what's... Yeah, we're known in the industry as a Series A fund. Okay. Um, but we do um, we do have a seed portfolio as well. Um, and for the average check size uh, for uh, seed startups that are about to go and raise their Series A, what are the typical check sizes that Craycroft writes uh, for a company that they're really excited about? Did you say for the seed stage? No, no. So, so like a for a for a seed stage startup that's graduating and now they're looking to raise their Series A. Oh. Uh, what's like the average check size, and and is Greycroft usually the lead uh, the lead investor in that round, or what's the we dynamics? Like lead, we don't have to lead. Mm -hmm. um, we try to be a pretty like. Um, uh, we don't have a lot of um, restrictions or needs when it comes to deal terms. Um, we like to lead only because if we're passionate about something, we might as well lead and put our um, uh, stake in the ground. Yeah, put a stake in the ground. Um, but we don't don't need to if that opportunity is not available. Um, in terms of size of round, I mean, for an A, it really can be all over the place. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think traditionally, this is a little bit more um, you know, almost five years ago now, but you would have thought about like the five to $10 million raise as your series A. Now it's um, like a seed and, round. <laughs> yeah. And now it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So, you know, but that doesn't mean that those rounds don't happen as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, um, 
it just depends on how much they raised before. Maybe they raised a huge um, seed round and um, uh, so their Series A and, and then they got a lot of traction and their Series A is going to be a little bit um, smaller, but it, it, I, I don't know. There's no standard answer to it. Yeah. Yeah. It really um, depends on the company's needs and and sometimes that's a, a signal, but other times it's really, it's really um, not because, you know, we're also... We're a hundred and fifty million, or sorry, we're a two hundred and fifty million dollar fund. I guess three hundred if you include the the Albertsons fund. Um, we're not a billion dollar fund um, today, so you know, for us, it's not as attractive to invest in a company that we know is going to need need hundreds of millions of dollars of capital to be able to be successful, because then all of a sudden we have to think about we have to rely on other investors to come in mm. and support our company. We cannot support them um, through their entire life cycle, which we would like to. Um, and so um, that precludes, precludes us from some of those really mega rounds, um, not because we don't want to be doing them, but because um, it might be a type of capital intensive business that isn't right. It's for not the right own. fit. Not the right fit. Um, Knowing that you have spent, you know, a lot of your career in the grocery consumer package like this space, now you're, you know, really focused with Albertsons. Does it make you want to explore other industries or do you find comfort in, you know, kind of the lane that you've developed for yourself? Like, do you ever think about esports or, you know, uh, like real estate tech or fin? And, and well, I guess real estate tech would fall into that, but. Um, do you enjoy the space that you're, you know, currently in, or do you also have desires, you know, someday to, to expand and, and look at other types of industries? Yeah. Um, I, um, yes, I enjoy, um, I enjoy the space I'm in. Um, and I, I actually have very much enjoyed being able to say, um, no, that's not in my area of, uh, of focus. And so to be able to say no to some companies just based on it's not my sector is um, a relief to me sometimes. Um, and I've actually really enjoyed becoming more um, ingrained in this specific industry, call it future of retail, grocery tech, um, you know, uh, consumer tech and consumer marketplaces. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I enjoy this, this specialization for sure. Uh, Elaine, what are you most excited about right now? Um, personal or business, just anything top of mind. What, what are you most excited about right now? Um, you mean in terms of a, a, a area of a theme or a specific company? Just anything. Always, always end our podcast with just what, you know, what do you, uh, what are you really excited about? It could be personal, it could be family, it could be business, it could be sector. Any wow. wow. Well, you're really, you're really broad. Mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I'll give you two then because I'll, I'm thinking about work, but I can't leave out, I guess, um, other things, but, um, what am I excited about? I am excited about within work and within our sector, there's two areas that I'm very excited about. One is, um, uh, it's been unfortunate times with, with COVID and all of the stress that it's put on our, um, on our entire, you know, world. Um, but let's talk about our, 
country first, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but what's come out of that is the prolification of e-commerce, and specifically when that relates to grocery. Um, I think that there's a huge opportunity, and and we are um, at the forefront, not only just Albertsons but Graycroft as well, to um, be a pioneer in that space and um, really uh, bring more options to the consumers as as the behavior is changing. Um, and we believe a lot of that behavior will will remain um, present going forward. Um, second of all, I think another sort of trend that I'm very excited about. Um, and I think it's been only sped up through this time as well is around um, personal nutrition and understanding um, the health and wellness of your of your own body and um, being a little bit more aware of, um, you know, where you stand in the in the um, schema of your just of health of healthiness. Um, are you healthy or not? You know, with this whole concept of, um, you know, it's very morbid to think about, but, you know, with this virus going around, um, everybody, I think, has kind of been forced to think, like, would I be able to weather it? Like, mm-hmm. how, how would my totally, body do? Totally. Um, and so that's pushed everybody to be a lot more conscious about, well, maybe I do need to be healthier, or maybe I need to just understand if I am healthy or not. I don't even know if I'm healthy or not. Um, and so I think that that's a really um, positive trend for us and our communities um, going forward to just uh, have a little bit more education around our bodies. And and then that really parlays into how do you improve your healthiness? And, and one big part of that is is food and, and what you eat and um, how you get it. So that that's also um, exciting for me. Um, uh, and um, I guess I'll leave you with, you know, I am... I think that the, the, the maybe there's been a lot of hard times, I think, for families, um, especially I'll just sort of say it for both working parents, but especially for working moms um, during this uh, time, especially when school is in session and quarantine or maybe even more worse when school is not in session. I don't know. It depends on your children. Um, and so, um, you know, it's it's very easy to get bogged down in the stress of every day, um, trying to juggle too many things. Um, but I also am really excited about the time that I've gotten to spend with, I have three young kids. So I have a seven-year-old, a five-year-old and a one-year-old. Um, so it's been, um, you know, going on six months now, which is crazy of, um, time that I've had at home with these kids, watching them grow and watching them develop a relationship with each other. And, um, that's kind of exciting too, that everybody, it's amazing. Me yeah. Too. Well, we just need to get them back to school. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Last question that I, uh, I always love asking everyone is, uh, when we are out of this quarantine, uh, what is the first restaurant that you're going to? What's your favorite restaurant and, uh, what's going to be your very first stop once you feel totally safe to get out of the house? Yeah. Um, for sure. Um, my favorite spot is, right down the street from my house. It's a restaurant called the Draycott. It's in the Palisades. It's in the Crusoe village. Um, Marissa Hermer is the, the owner. Um, and it has a lovely patio with lovely margaritas, wonderful food. Um, and it's a beautiful little retreat. So, um, that is, that is my top, um, top spot. 
Elaine, thank you so, so much for joining us today on Demo Day. I know you've got a full family waiting for you, so we really appreciate you and uh, look forward to connecting again uh, in the future. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, and, great to share with you. Uh, I'm Sean Goldvan from Coefficient Labs. This is Demo Day. Thanks so much. Peace. Peace.